You go, how's it going, man? You said you're busy? Yeah, I'm buying another house. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing, Robert. Uh, this one, this one's for us to live in. Yeah. So they accepted the offer, and now it's the appraisal inspection time. It's exciting, I, I, man. I, I went super aggressive, man. I told you. <laughs> I was like, uh, we'll see. We'll see where, how that where works is it out at? for me. Preston and George Bush. Is that uh, you're a mogul now? I I do believe real estate two properties is a mogul. Mogul status. You. That's it. Wow. Yeah, more than me and Charles combined. I was going to do that. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. So I uh, kind of, I would oh, okay. say the yeah, southwest yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. corner of Preston and George Bush. Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty stoked. It's a it's a very tidy little house. The single family home. Little single family home. You know, the one in Prosper was kind of you know big three thousand square foot two mm-hmm. you know floor thing that we wouldn't need. And this one's just like a, I think sixteen or seventeen hundred square feet and you know single story kind of ranch. Is the one in Prosper still rented? Yeah. Yeah, still still going strong. Sweet. So it's you know generating <laughs> uh, generating some income. Silicon Valley when Jared <laughs> rented his uh his apartment and the guy yes. stopped paying and then he yeah. was squatting in there, but yes. then he was Airbnb-ing it. <laughs> he couldn't kick him out. <laughs> it's it's hard to kick people out. Yeah. 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 So you you know probably it, should be. It's or a it's a sense. risky leasing your properties to people is a, is a risky endeavor. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Thirteen minutes away from me, Igor. Oh, there you go. I neighbors. You know, it's just such a central location that it's close to everybody except for uh Robert. Yeah. <laughs> no, that doesn't mean anything about y'all's friendship at all. No, it's just, no, you know, just no. it's it just a fact. That's all. Something just about Robert's value uh, criteria yeah, for, is for buying directly a home. proportional to how far away we live from each other. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, man, the house right beside me, right next door to me, sold mm-hmm. and could have been my next door neighbor, but you're not. Like, I, have no, yeah. I have no rebuttal for that. <laughs> yeah. It's boring. There's also zero crime. So, you know, whatever. For now. <laughs> yeah, until you move until, in. Where's yeah, the fun of right. that, man? Until that's, the Russians move yeah. in. I don't, you can go to other, other cities for crime. No crime, good schools, still some cattle farmers, finally got a Chick fil A. We had a Chipotle burned down, so <laughs> there is that. No. And you say there's no process. crime. <laughs> that was uh, it. W- there was no malfeasance. Sure, allegedly, mm-hmm. they, they wouldn't tell you. That's true. That's true. I didn't even know it burned down. I was um, like the DoorDash com- comes from a different location. The old, the one that we used to order from, and I was asking the driver. I was like, "Hey, like, what's going on? Is this that other Chipotle seems really busy?" And she was like, "Yeah, it's because the." One close to you burned down. I was like, oh my gosh. So I actually don't know what happened. Could have been malfeasance. But also not technically in Sunnyvale. So there you go. There you go. Sunnyvale prevails. (laughs) I guess. That should be the motto. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Charles, you're still in. um, I am. Yep. Over over by UTD. Yep. That's a cool place. Are you going to be there? There's a really good Mexican food place by you, Charles. Oh, yeah. Which one? It's called Frankie's. It's uh, Frankie Frankie's Mexican cuisine. It is uh, phenomenal. Frankie's with a I E I E S. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's real close. Frankie's. I'll check it out. I think there's an Elsa's special, but I, it could just be get frozen on the brain. Where they, it's like enchiladas with fajitas on top. It's oh, like wow. Ranchero mm-hmm. sauce. It's right really next good. to the Canyon Creek Country Club, so you know it's going to be good. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Get, get in your golf cart and head over there. <laughs> Igor, Job yeah. a good Thanksgiving? I'll probably be there for a few years. Oh, in that house? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just renting yeah. for a few years. Yeah, why not? Seems pretty, looks pretty nice. Yeah, that's nice. And at that point, Jamie will be done in Alabama, and then we'll figure out what we want to do house-wise. Yeah. Hopefully the market will have tanked significantly, except for your rental properties. So that way, and your, <laughs> which and your he'll, house, he'll have, Robert. Yeah, he'll have 12 one. by then. <laughs> I don't care what happens with my house because I'm, I'm not moving. So mm, gotcha. I already got the mortgage locked in. So I'm, it's good. Whatever happens, happens. Yeah. Thanksgiving was good, Robert. I, I stopped by to see my old landlords. Speaking of moguls, where, you know, I used to run from there down, they had that studio apartment well they bought they bought a house in garland to be their primary residence they also bought a rental property and have renovated that themselves and they bought another one on the same street so now they own two rental properties on that street and i just imagine that they're going to buy up and they have a goal of of having like 10 to 12 properties I just imagine that they're going to buy up that entire street and just rename the street, you know, <laughs> based right. on their last name, the Rowells. But yeah, they said that based off of the proceeds of selling their, you know, $1.6 million house in Lakewood, they they now own those three properties, like their two rental properties plus their primary residence, they own them outright. So they, they used all the cash proceeds to... So smart. Yeah. yeah good yeah. for them. It's so cool, yeah. So they downgraded, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. significantly. Significantly, yeah, yeah. Okay, are their kids out of out of the house or? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So they, oh man, good for them. Yeah, the kids. That's a good move. He's probably late twenties. He's a little older than Jamie. Yeah, he's kind of running the rental properties. The dad's doing all the renovation, and so they're they're in a what they consider a dying industry. They're in the alcohol distributor world and so they're like yeah you know eventually this industry is going to go away so we need another form of income because of robots or what i don't know i guess like legislation that's changing around you know essentially the distributors have a monopoly they've had a monopoly on how to sell or i guess distribute alcohol but now there's things changing where companies can start to sell alcohol directly to consumers in ways that they couldn't before and so it would yeah. be like if you owned a car dealership and then all of a sudden Ford could just sell you mm-hmm, the cars mm-hmm. outright. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Like wineries in California can are finding ways to try to sell direct to consumers as opposed to having to get into a partnership with a national distributor sort of thing. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the details. But anyway, we want to get started. We're talking about chapter yeah. one. Well, I do have back. a hard stop at one o'clock. Just Let's do it. Welcome back to the Trillion Dollar Coach series. The the funny thing about this chapter, so chapter one, the caddy and the CEO, up until now in the book, the authors have said multiple times that we're not going to write a biography about Bill Campbell. We're not going to tell you about his life. We're going to distill his sort of leadership wisdom because he wouldn't want us to just talk about him. And then they proceed to write a chapter 
basically just talking about <laughs> him and his right. life and and that kind of thing. It's I, I wouldn't be able to resist though. I mean, it's so I think important to set the stage for the rest of the book. I have it's not offensive to me. It's just kind of funny that Bill wouldn't want this, but we gotta. So just one chapter, we promise, and then we'll we'll get into the guts. But well, he's dead, so you know. Yeah, he can't. He's not going to complain. Anymore. Yeah, although I think the book had its desired effect too. You know, it's it's been very helpful to a large group of people. So yeah, yeah, that was the first thing that stood out when I was reading the chapter. I think maybe the first or second page. I think they were setting the stage for his funeral, I guess. And he said they they just described so many people showing up, and there was a phrase in there way more than respected. He was loved. Mm, and that mm-hmm. that really kind of stuck out to me because in the business world, you know, where does love fit in? You know, so it's just kind of interesting. It's just what what is what is the role of love in successful businesses, I guess, or in leadership, you know, what role does love play in effectively leading or coaching people? Do you need to love or be loved to be an effective coach? It made me think about those things, which may not be where we want to take it. But Yeah, we can. You know, in the very beginning of the chapter, he talked about his failures as a football coach and a lot of it had to do with caring too much, which is funny because, you know, it's a cliche. What's your biggest weakness, Charles? <laughs> I guess care too much. I care yeah, too much. Yeah. But he he pointed out that success as a football coach, American football coach, depends on dispassion, mm-hmm. right? So you have to be detached to a certain degree from your players. You have to be able to replace one with another based on performance or injuries or whatever. And that was just a really hard thing for Bill Campbell to do. But it turns out in when you move from such a fixed, finite game like football, we have winners and losers on a weekly basis into a more open landscape, infinite type game of business, and especially in the technology space, where things just scale so well, that compassion served as like a multiplying effect for his leadership effectiveness. And I would argue, back to your point, Charles, that most leaders bring the same level of dispassionate leadership or management of a software development team or an accounting team or an HR team as football coaches do to their team. I I don't think, even though there's much more room to care deeply about the people that you work with in a business environment, I don't think we even approach the appropriate level of of compassion as leaders. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, before we were recording, you know, Igor, we were talking about war. It's like generals probably need that level of dispassion and disconnection from their troops that they're leading to to be effective. And so I like what he said, Robert, about how the difference between the two is that, you know, American football and in war, not to equate the two because that's just not not appropriate, but they are finite games. You know, there are winners and losers. And I didn't pick that up when I read, reread it. So that, thank you for, for sharing that. I like that distinction and why he's so much more successful in one than the other. I think that makes sense. Yeah, th- there's, a, there's a section title in there called Too Much Compassion. And I, I don't know, like it... Is there such a thing as too much compassion? Well, okay, so mixing books here, Jocko Wunk, we talked about him a bunch. He has a book called Dichotomy of Leadership, which I know we've referenced before. And so it's like train hard, but train smart, aggressive, not reckless, discipline, not rigid. You know, so it kind of goes into, you know, when to mentor, when to fire, own it all, but empower others. So there's kind of like, 
these nuances into leadership behaviors that kind of cut a little bit deeper than you're normally you normally think about them. And the very first chapter is the ultimate dichotomy, which is caring for the team, but also you have to complete the mission. So in Jocko's world, when he was a Navy SEALs commander, obviously that was a life or death thing. We don't deal with life or death things. But there is a way, he would argue, to care deeply for each individual on the team while at the same time accepting the risks necessary to accomplish the mission. And in our world, that could mean putting a member of our team in front of a senior stakeholder when they're really nervous and and maybe less prepared than they'd want to be in order to get the right level of experience or to let someone struggle with fixing a production issue without jumping in and solving it for them. There is a level here going through adversity in order to grow and improve. And if we've talked about this before too. If you step in and fix the problem for the people on your team and remove that pain, which is a very human natural instinct, it robs the person of their destiny, right? And that was something that, the the complete opposite of what we would want when we were in that position. And so I, I do think there's a level of caring like too much, maybe you go, you get into enabling, right? Which is not helpful. So maybe too much caring can be not helpful. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure how that works, but I do think there is a way to, and, and Jocko again calls it the ultimate dichotomy, caring for the team, but also there is a mission to be completed and you have to balance those risks and, and care. Yeah, I think there's a fine line there between compassion, you know, which is you know, showing kindness and caring about and being willing to help other people and coddling, you know, being a big softy sort of thing, for lack of a better phrase or definition there. And I don't know if I would call it too much compassion, though, you know, but I think I'm, I may be getting too caught up in the semantics and the definition of compassion. But I, I totally understand the dichotomy. I, I like that. And I, I remember, again, I don't know if this chapter one or the rest of the book, but Bill Campbell, even though he really cared for his players and he cared for the people on his team and the business world, he was definitely not a softy. No, no, he was really tough. He was very, very tough. And so, yeah, I I think it's important to not equate being compassionate and caring with soft and lenient because, yeah, there is, you know, every team has some sort of objective, you know, whether it's to win the football game or to accomplish the, the mission or the objective or to make a business successful. And it definitely requires a balance of both, right? Because in, in all of those things, like we're motivating, we're trying to motivate, as leaders, we're trying to motivate other human beings, you know? And, uh, exactly. And, you know, seeing someone do something poorly who is under your charge, right? Who's on your team and not pointing that out to them and offering support and guidance for how to improve for the next time is not compassion. That mm-hmm. is a level of cruelty. Mm-hmm. And- yeah. So I think you, we owe it to not providing feedback is, uh, you know, I'm not saying you have to bat a thousand here, but to, to consistently avoid it in the, in the name of compassion doesn't make any sense. I'm, Igor, I, I, the first thing that popped into my mind is we had someone, you know, right before Igor went on sabbatical, pretty junior member of the team, need to go and give up a, a fairly important, like it's, it was in, an important update in that we had to check the box before we could consider a project complete but also not so high stakes that if this discussion didn't go well, we would be behind schedule or tank our relationship or anything. So it was, it was a good learning opportunity. And this guy did a horrible job in his presentation. And yeah, I thought Igor did a really great job 
coming alongside after the fact, pointing out, hey, this didn't go well. Here's here's what I saw. Here's the level of preparation that's probably required before you go into this. You know, had a good discussion on here's the feedback. Here's what we can do to get better next time. We supported, added a little bit of support by showing up to the next meeting to provide some air cover. And then he nailed it. He did a great job. And, and I don't ever expect this person to show up to another meeting ever again. <laughs> so unprepared because he, he knows what it feels like, but also we helped get through the other end of it to a place where now there's like a level of competence here. And the way Igor did that, the, a, a word that comes to mind is compassionate, but it was also uncomfortable. You know, that on that first little bit where you had to go through that little bit of, I don't, remediation might be the right word or wrong word, but certainly feedback and adjustment and support in order to get the resolution that we needed. I, you know, I, I felt I felt good, and I did not feel that that intervention lacked compassion. Like I very much reconciled that that you know it was a tough conversation, and but I it was it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing for the Finn, and in its own way, it was compassionate. Really, even though it was you know tough and no nonsense. I'm curious how the how your your team member received that? Do you think that they received it as compassion or were they, I, I don't know, what do you think it was like for them to be on the receiving end of that? Yeah, you, you know, I think the thing that I think about a lot is when when a situation requires that sort of intervention, I work really hard on establishing close relationships with people on, on my team. And so part of that is building up trust in the relationship and, and in one another. And the other part of that is also coming to an understanding of how people react to different types of feedback and how it's delivered. And and I think because of the relationship building that's done before you have to do an intervention, it it probably went pretty smoothly because you know the framing, the context setting, the tone, the follow-up was I think what that person was expecting and what they would positively react to. And and they expressed gratitude, you know, for for the feedback. And I felt it was it was genuine. I didn't think it was just like, oh yeah, thanks for the feedback. You know, I, I felt that they genuinely appreciated getting detailed feedback and what to do and and why it's important and what they might do in the future as well. Right. Because it wasn't about, you know, it was like, hey, here's what happened at the meeting, but I don't want to focus on that. What I want to focus on is talking about the behavior and what our next opportunity is for practicing the right behavior. And yeah, it, it, I think it went off pretty well, but boy, you know, there's, there's definitely an opportunity for that conversation to not go well either, right? If you don't focus on relationship building, if you don't have an understanding of sort of the nuance of, of how to deliver feedback to different people and how they're going to react, you know, some people are like, you know, you give them the feedback sandwich, you know, the good, bad, good. No, please don't ever right? do that. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know if, I, if I've ever met anyone that enjoyed the feedback sandwich. You know, that's such, that's such a kludgy way of addressing situations. And, you know, people that listen to that advice, I think, should think twice about employing it. So every person's different. They require different approaches. And, you know, you've got to figure out what those are as, as their coach. You know, I, I bet uh, Bill Campbell would also tell you that. So part of the reason this popped into my head is I, I have a little bit of 
firsthand observations on how it went because not not because I needed to get involved, but because Igor went on vacation and so I was covering and so I was part of the discussion, the meeting after the feedback had been given. And I think maybe a good a good sign is when you give feedback to someone and they are hard on themselves, appropriately hard on themselves. I think that's a good proxy. You know, there there's definitely you can definitely give feedback in a way that makes someone feel terrible. Like we've all done it, hopefully most of the time inadvertently. But, you know, this particular person was itching to go on the next meeting, was excited about, you know, get, getting an opportunity to to come in and show what he's capable of and and really nailed it. I mean, it was it was great. It was night and day. And those, you know, you do that a hundred times, you know, the, your first few years out of out of college and you've built like a really strong foundation for career growth. And so I, I definitely think, Igor, you hit such a great point, which is that relationship capital has to be there so that you get the benefit of the doubt when you have to go give an uncomfortable, difficult message. Because just because you had a good relationship doesn't mean didn't really make it any easier. It just helped ensure that your intention, which was to help this person improve, was viewed as genuinely trying to help them. And not that you were angry or useful. Yeah, exactly. But basically, it's, it's coming from the right place. And, and the right place is investment in developing that person. Like that I personally care about their growth and their development. And I care about that beyond the result of any single meeting. And, and then the feedback was all about their growth. But you have to have that relationship with that person to believe it. You know, like it has to be felt. And and that and I think if you approached it in with a level of dispassion, right, like we were just talking about, we could have probably had this person replaced, right? We could have gone down avenues that removed responsibility that were a little bit harsh in the feedback or callous, maybe harsh is probably the wrong word. Like we could have done things to marginalize and minimal, minimize the quote unquote risk of this happening again. But ultimately that's, that that's not a good long-term recipe for success. And again, we wouldn't want people treating us like that, right? And so I think that's where sort of the difference is in, you know, trending more on the the side of of compassion, which does require it, it is a necess a necessity to have these difficult conversations. Hey, so a question for you for you two about this situation. Because one one of the things I was reminded of when I was reading this chapter was that Bill Campbell was more of a team coach as opposed to an individual one-on-one coach. Not to say he didn't have one-on-ones, right? He, he coached individual people, but it was, it was really, you know, he was trying to maximize the output of the team. And so in this situation that you all are describing, did you all discuss who would, you know, who amongst the team would, would deliver this presentation in Igor's absence? Because, you know, what y'all were describing was the coaching of one particular person on their, on their, you know, performance, you know, doing one certain activity. But the, the piece that I really liked and that I wrote down here today was that the authors identified a, a critical factor for success in companies. And that is that teams act as communities and that Bill Campbell was really good about managing that tension of, you know, getting individual performance out of people and balancing the tension across highly ambitious 
you know, smart, opinionated people on a team to achieve the, the team's desired outcomes and goals. And so did that apply? Does that apply to the situation that you're all describing where, you know, you thought about and selected that this is the person that should go do this presentation or was it really focused on the individual? That yeah. question even makes sense. Yeah, great. And, and I, I was hoping we would get here, so I'm glad you brought it up. There, there was a community response here, right? The person I gave the, the original presentation and then the follow-up one, that was part of his set of responsibilities. And based on interest, skill set, level, you know, those kind of things, I think when it talked about this in the book is this collective obsession with what's good for the group, for the community versus the individual. So it did, it took more energy to collectively support because me, Igor, and then the the manager on the team. And so there, as far as a supportive community, we all kind of rallied around to make sure that this was not a repeat, you know, because you can, a lot of times that doing client work, you can get by making a mistake. If you repeat that mistake, people start to really kind of ask questions. And so we wanted to make sure that we did everything possible to put this person the best possible chance to exceed, to succeed. And so that was more of a community support effort versus just working with some person individually. We kind of banded around. That. And, and maybe this can provide some context too, because at least as far as I'm concerned, in the same pile that I put the feedback sandwich into as advice, there's also a piece of advice that I put in that same pile, and that is praise in public and criticize in private. And, you know, right after the first meeting happened, we did a team, let's call it an after, after action report. And we did it as a team. And we talked about the things that worked and the things that didn't work and like at the individual level and, you know, what we could do about it and what we could improve next time. And then there's follow-up one-on-one coaching. But, you know, the initial discussion about the performance was actually done with with the team. And and it did consider this idea that, yes, you know, this one meeting, maybe it was this person's accountability to talk about this specific topic. But at the end of the day, we do things as a team and we succeed as a team where we fail as a team. And it's, you know, not, you know, this person failed because if that person failed, then, then the team's failed. And um, so I, I don't know if that helps to provide more context into how it was, you know, handled. Yeah, I think it reinforces the point that the authors make towards the end of the chapter around, you know, every sports team has a coach. And, you know, the business world, you might try to draw the conclusion that every every team within the business world needs a coach. But that that's probably not feasible, right? A lot of executives, senior executives have executive coaches. And, and I don't know if, if this is just based on that constraint where it'd be really hard to have a Bill Campbell for every team, for every business out there. But they, they assert that, you know, the best coaches are the managers of the teams themselves, right? So it's not so, so as a leader... If you're leading a team, you need to see as part of your responsibility to be the team's coach. And I know that's something that that is probably innately drilled into us, you know, based on the way that we approach leadership at our company. But I would venture to guess that that's probably not a universally held belief, you know, that all managers, all leaders of teams are also coaches. 
what do you all think about that? You think that's a well accepted kind of component of leadership, or is that a is that a radical kind of viewpoint out there in the business world? Well, yeah, I definitely agree that the person best positioned to coach a team is the leader of that team. So you can break down the way organizations are structured. Basically, your direct reports, you're their coach. Certainly shouldn't stop there. I, I think there's people who are uniquely qualified or have the right level of experience or interests or whatever to to provide that sort of cross-functional coaching. So it shouldn't exclusively be on the team, but I think that's first line of coaching, if you will. It should definitely be the team's manager. It should be more explicit in the expectations for that leader. And it's not, and I think most people don't view who are in leadership positions, I would say less than half probably view their view it as their job or or a primary or maybe the primary responsibility of their role is to is to coach the team. I just I don't see a, a lot of it, but I could be wrong. Same. I, I mean I think like way less than half, right? Like probably ten percent or less. I think a lot I of wonder folks, if that's a well, go ahead, Igor. Go ahead, finish. Sorry. I, I think managers I think of their job as to manage however they want to define it and and not to coach or, you know, they don't think of coaching activities as part of their management sort of duties. And so they just don't, yeah, they don't think about it that way. They don't practice it. And some people may not even think about it that way, but they practice it anyway, right? Because it's something that sort of comes to them naturally, whether, you know, that's how they learned leadership when they were, you know, kids, you know, if they participate in sports or other sort of activities where, you know, they had coaches and they understood the importance of, of that sort of interaction to, to their success as a, as a player. Yeah. And then obviously people who are not in a formal leadership position coach others all the time, right? Especially if you're, if you've been on a team for a couple of years, there's a new person that comes in who is your peer you know, helping them get up to speed, onboarded, feeling part of the group, and making introductions, getting them the credentials and everything set up. There, there's a like sort of temporary coach idea there as well. So I, I think there's also tr- this transient nature where co- coach, by definition, is temporary, right? In any in any profession, that's not a someone is not your coach forever, but you can be a coach to it's a many to many kind of thing. Robert, I don't know if I followed that. At the end, could you just say more about that? <laughs> yeah, I, it got away from <laughs> me there. Okay, so uh, you got you got the first part about you can be a coach, you can serve as a coach without a formal title. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely yeah, yeah, obvious. Yeah, okay, yeah. the coach relationship, so coach and coachee, coachy coach and team member, maybe is a better way to say it. Those are by definition always temporary. They could last multiple years, but you know, Bill Belichick is no longer Tom Brady's coach. Hmm. But Tom Brady may go and call Bill up before a big game or something, and they may they may talk about thoughts and ideas around football, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Yep. There's a subset of people you're coaching right now that you won't be probably in a year, and some you might still be. And so the the coaching relationship is transient in nature, and it's this it's not it's not also not very scalable because there's individual one on one time or uh, required, but there is a sort of this many to many factor where. You can be a coach to several, several people can be coaching you. Uh, and I think managing the sort of ebbs and flows of those relationships is, is a beneficial thing to to think about. Mm. Yeah, I think I, I now understand what you're saying. I think I'm going to need to 
sit on that and chew on that. Well, it just popped into my head. Well, no, it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Write us if I'm wrong, please. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm thinking about, okay, what are the implications of that? You know, it's, you've got this web of coaching activity that happens over time. And my initial reaction is, hmm, it's kind of hard to make sense of all that, right? If you're getting conflicting advice from different coaches about a particular thing, you know, what, what does that mean? And you should be. You, you definitely should be getting mm-hmm. conflicting advice from coaches because these, the, the situations you find yourself in are, are nuanced and complex. And there's a, a worldview, a filter with which the person, the coaching relationship takes on. And so it, it's a good thing for you to triangulate advice from a group of people and then make your own decision. Yeah. Maybe not so good if you're just doing what a single person tells you. There's there's some real truth to that. I I don't remember exactly in my career when I stopped just assuming that what my manager or mentor or coach was telling me at the time as just absolute truth, unabashed truth that I should just accept outright and not question. But I definitely don't do that anymore. And that's not a reflection of the coach. That's probably more of a reflection of my maturity and my ability to you know, kind of operate in more nuanced situations. And so, yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah, one one kind of meme or analogy I put in a lot of presentations I do, and, and I don't, I, I make sports analogies a lot. One, I like sports, and two, you know, when we're talking about leadership and performance and those kind of things, like it's, it's just such a concrete example, but I, I do need maybe a to expand my repertoire a little bit, but there's this Major League Baseball player, and I actually don't like baseball at all, really, but they, I think the example's good. So Mike Trout, he's a Major League Baseball player for the Los Angeles Angels, and one of the best hitters in the league today. So his batting average is 305. So it's also interesting that 70% of the time he fails at batting, which is the thing that he's best at. But anyway, 300 or Point three will get you in the Hall of Fame. It's that good. And there is an image I use of Mike Trout talking to a batting coach before, like during a game, like before he goes up to the plate. Like if, if you could ever make an argument <laughs> that someone didn't need a coach, right? Like this, this guy's like at the top of his game and is one of the best to ever play the position and, or at least a, a, one of the best hitters in the, in the history of baseball. And yet he has several coaches and the coaches bring him observations. So again, detached, they're not, they're not in his shoes. They don't have to step up to the plate. They can, they can watch from a distance while he's practicing his craft and they offer observations, thoughts, and ideas on how to improve. And at this point in his career, he's looking for an edge, right? Little tiny tweaks that maybe compound into a big thing. And so I I think we should all think of ourselves as world-class performers or aspirational world-class performers in our craft, in our, in our work, in our industry. And the coaching and feedback and information that we take in is like Mike Trout getting, getting feedback from his coaches. Their thoughts and ideas to help you become better at your craft, but you have to be the one to internalize, distill, and act on based on the context that you have. I love it, man. That was great. So the the other thing, Charles, that I wanted to talk to you about because, and I'm reading this book now with a with a bit of an eye towards the the team coaching because I I think I mentioned last time is a very interesting observation that you made. 
you know, it said in, in this chapter, you know, he, you know, generally kept like opinions to himself as far as product and strategy, which is interesting because, you know, he's bouncing, he has all this inside information bouncing around these technology companies. He probably actually gleaned a lot of what works and what didn't work. But it says he made sure the team was communicating, the tensions and disagreements were brought to the surface and discussed, and that when big decisions were made, everyone was on board, even if they didn't agree. So that's a really, I think, interesting distilled you know example of the things that that Bill did. I think most of his time, if I'm not mistaken, though, was focused on the individuals. He occasionally attended, well, I think I would say regularly attended staff meetings and things like that. So he was definitely part of the group discussions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think when it says he coached the team, he he did it through individuals. He sensed the greater picture, yeah. figured out what needed to happen, where those tensions and weak spots were, and then worked through others to help resolve. Is is that the impression that you're getting here? Yeah, it is. And and I think it, it depends on which situation, right? Because when he was at, because he was... You know, his, his role was not purely coach all the time in his career, right? He was actually a manager and a leader. And he would CEO, hold... Right? One, he yeah, CEO, right? Yeah, CEO. Yeah, he'd, he'd have one-on-ones and staff meetings and things like that. But then, you know, later on, yeah, he, he served purely as like a... Or I guess more purely like an advisor and a one-on-one, you know, kind of coach. But yeah, I I think I interpreted that way too. It's just that... I, it's just phenomenal that he's able to you know, through one-on-one interactions, you know, keep the team's overarching goal and objective in mind, right? That That's just really hard for me because I, I don't know. I think I, I, I pay, I try to pay so much attention to the individual and help them achieve their goals or thinking about the team's objective, the project's objective and how to optimize for that. I don't know. I mean, it, I, I can understand why, you know, they say that there is literally only one Bill Campbell ever and nobody will be as great as him and nobody should try to be as great as him because balancing that, that's just, that's just black voodoo magic. If you ask me, <laughs> like, I, I'm just well, trying to think about, you know, how I try to balance those things and my conclusion is poorly not very well yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i felt the same way luckily though this is this is a spectrum so it's not like uh you know it's not like professional sports in the regard that you can be moderately above average and have a wildly successful career and we're we are we're getting a front row seat into someone's craft that you know created over a trillion dollars in value in the market right that was a i think it's such a great way to frame up the impact that Bill Campbell's had on like the, the US economy, the technology sector, these individual companies, as well as as people. You know, the three of us do not have that level of uh reach. And so we are we will not be required to be to have that level of confidence, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it it does kind of say that at the end it's like, hey, improving in any of these areas will 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 go a long way into helping you improve as a leader. So yeah. that's that's where that, that gave me some solace. But I did kind of think about the same thing. Like, how the heck are you supposed to? Uh, yeah, supposed to do this. Yep. And I, I think for me, it was more less of a you know I'm I'm beating myself up. I'm not saying you're doing this either, Robert, but it was just more of wow. Like I I've never met the guy. I don't even know what the guy looks like, other than maybe the you know the photo of him on the front of the book jacket. But there's a sense of awe that I can 
kind of tap into when I think about that, like how difficult it is for me to do that. And so the fact that he did that so consistently for such a long period of time, just really freaking crazy, right? It's like he's clearly a world-class, you know, expert in, you know, motivating humans. Yeah. yeah awesome. Yeah. Well, that means we're reading the right book. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So we'll get into some practical stuff next week. They did say it was, what is it, four four sections, just looking at my notes. So how Bill got the details right in management skills. So one-on-one staff meetings, handling challenging employees. So there's this, how does Bill Campbell manage the mechanics of managing a team? Very important. You have to have that as a foundation. It's hard to coach someone on a nuanced topic if you don't know how to have a one-on-one, right? How to <laughs> how to handle hand- challenging employees, right? Those kind of things. Next is how to how Bill Campbell built trust with the people he worked with. So assuming that's the individuals that he coached, that in, if we're talking individual versus team, and then how he built and created teams, and then to the point you made at the beginning of the episode, Charles, how he made it okay to bring love into the workplace. And so they use that term very specifically. So I'll be, maybe we'll put a pin in that and see once we get to the content, how how that ended up working out. Yep. And I think that's a good overview of what the rest of the book is going to show. You know, they, there's a, not a quote, but the authors wrote this about Bill Campbell. There was only one Bill Campbell, perhaps the most extraordinary individual we have had the pleasure and honor to meet and befriend. It's like, holy moly, that's... Well, and you have to think about who said that, which yeah, is yeah. CEO of Google. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Like already pretty exceptional people. Yeah. And, and... So that yes, Bill Campbell has been unanimously voted in as most exceptional of the exceptional. So you know, it it makes me wonder. It's like wow, you know, just thinking through some counterfactuals, what if scenarios. It's like what if instead of a Silicon Valley business executive, he was in government, you know, or or I don't know, in life sciences and healthcare. It's like what what could have done could have been done with him leading and coaching people in different environments, you know, just given how extraordinary he was. That's just maybe something I'll be thinking about as we go through this, just, you know, does this stuff apply and transfer outside of the, you know, business and technology world? My intuition says yes, but I don't know. It's worth validating and testing that assumption. You know, on that same note, if we're talking about what ifs, what if he stayed in football? Something that he was biologically wired to not succeed at. Hmm. Yeah. Right? It, it's like you're, there was this headwind for him the whole time. Like he wasn't going to fundamentally change who he was. And he probably would have had a really long, successful career as a head coach. But I think there's a, there's a sub-theme in here too where, you know, if you're in a role where it's not working out, it's not because you suck right? It's because more than likely the situation is not ideal for you. Mm. And maybe changing the situation is the way to go. There's tons of places that like, I I would say I've had a fairly successful career to date. There's tons of places I wouldn't be able to last the week at. I'll get fired. And so a lot of times it's more of an indication of the fit than, than the person. Well, just, just imagine, because he started his business executive career late, you know, comparatively speaking, I guess to, you know, me who started my career out of college, just imagine the sunk cost in 
being a head football coach that he had to ignore you know, to kind of make that leap and change careers late, later on in life than, than many, that in and of itself is impressive. I don't know if I'd have it in me right, to recognize, this, no, this is an ideal, and yet I've invested 15, 20 years in this thing. I don't think I can walk away. Right? So I think about that sometimes. I wonder if he did. I'm sure he did. But. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, big, big risk, move across the country, a lot of unknowns. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever happened, I'm glad... I'm glad he did what he did because now we have a a really great book and you know props to the authors for for saying Bill would have wanted this to be in the hands of everybody so let's write it down and open source the content and get it to as if if you want this content you can have it for free really there's a lot of you know summaries and things like that online so you know I think that's a that's a really powerful thing for Bill Campbell's legacy but also it, Bill Campbell if you want to talk about the ripple effect of someone's life you know has had a pretty large impact on the three of us and the people that we lead and and coach and manage and you know we've never met the guy and we don't live anywhere near california and so chances are we won't work with any of the any of his apprentices right and so we're getting the benefit of that distilled coaching wisdom and guidance which i think is pretty cool yeah talk about a legacy huh yeah yeah, yeah. impressive i mean it could be a billion people a billion people like could benefit from these coaching techniques over time. That's pretty cool. Igor, you've been awfully quiet, friend. I just thought, you know, this is this is a, a really great book. And the, to Charles's point earlier, you know, is this a common thing? And I said not common and, and maybe less than 10%. And I think the good work that this book is doing and hopefully that we're some small part of while we're talking about the book and promoting the book in our own way is uh, getting that number to edge higher. So that's yeah, that's what I'm excited about. And and look at the impact that someone like Bill Campbell's had on people's lives. Like they're showing up to his funeral, mm-hmm. flying in from across the country. People are tied to him in a in a deep emotional way, and and they're all looking around saying, "My life is made better because of this person." And so, yeah, what a great thing to focus on. Yeah. Uh-oh. Hey, uh, next week, Igor, I, it's one of your favorite chapters, I'm sure, because you say stuff like this all the time. But maybe your favorite phrase of your title makes you a manager, but your people make you a leader. So this will be your sweet spot yep. next week. Yep. I'm really looking forward to it. It's a, it's a great chapter. All the chapters here are great. I think there's six in total. So we covered chapter one today. So we got five more exciting episodes uh, coming and the next episode is going to be really, really great. Can't end it better than that. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, y'all. All right. Good chat. Good chat. See you later. See ya. That's it for today. Thanks for joining. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WannaGrabCoffee or drop us a line at hello at WannaGrabCoffee.com.